good evening. Uh, on behalf of the Mohatan program and the Dario Bari Endowment, I would like to welcome you all here. A special welcome to Ms. Dario Bari, who has joined us here tonight. And uh, we are always very happy when she uh, uh, comes to one of uh, her programs and our programs. Uh, you have the list of uh, our upcoming events. The next one is Professor Turaji Daryoi, who will be talking on May the 2nd on the uses and abuses of history in uh, the formation of Iranian identities on May 2nd uh, at 6.30, same room, same time. Uh, tonight's uh, guest, uh, Professor Jasmine Darzanik, uh, has a remarkable career. Uh, she has a PhD in English language from Princeton University. She also has a law degree from Hastings. She practiced law for a couple of years before she decided that uh, she has paid her dues to her family, has uh, satisfied their desire that their child must be either a doctor and engineer, or if not either one of those, then a lawyer. Uh, and once she showed them she could do law, uh, she decided to go back and do what she really liked and got a PhD in English uh, and creative writing from Princeton. She has taught at a number of places. She's now a professor of creative writing and uh, fiction, particularly diaspora fiction, and uh, particularly Iranian diaspora fiction uh, at Washington and Lee University. Uh, her book has been her debut work, about which she will talk here, has been remarkably successful. It became a New York Times bestseller. It has been translated into eight different languages. And for a debut novel, uh, a debut uh, memoir, I think that is a remarkable accomplishment. She's in the process of work, uh, writing a work of fiction, and hopefully the next time we have her, we will have her as uh, the author of a new New York Times best-selling work of fiction. Ms. Jessica. First of all, thank you so much for coming out. It's such glorious weather. It's a lot to compete with. Uh, and I thank you for choosing me. <laughs> I wanted to also thank the Mogadam program. I just, my heart lifts to see the extraordinary program that's been created here at Stanford. Um, it's just the pride, I think, of all the Iranians. Um, I'd say around the world, not even just in California or the US. Uh, I also just briefly, I wanted to thank Miss um, Pasang Sherpa, who so wonderfully organized every little bit and made me feel most most welcome in coming out to California. Dr. Milani, he, he does not remember this, or when I quizzed him earlier, he can't remember, but years ago, about, uh, about 15 years ago, when I was a graduate student, I sent him, I don't know if there was even email in those days, but I sent him a message, or I called him, and I said, I'm, I'm interested in Iranian memoir. Yours is one I admire so much. Will you please talk to me? And he wrote back right away, and he was so generous. Um, he, I, I don't know if he remembers this, but I've never forgotten it, how very generous he was with me. And you can imagine, given that history, how exciting it is for me to return some 15 years later and talk to him now, Dr. Milani, about my memoir. 
So I'm going to talk a bit. Um, I know we have about an hour or so together. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd like to talk first um, about memoir, my memoir, but also memoir as a genre, and to talk to about what I'll call the art of memory, which I think is such a vital art in our community and one we should attend to um, as Iranians. And then I'm going to read briefly from the book. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read it, but I think I'll just read enough to give you a flavor of the work. And after that, I'm really happy to engage with you and answer any questions you might have about my book, any of the remarks I make in the course of my more formal lecture. So with that, I'll start. Yeki bud, yeki nabud. There was one, all was one. Every Iranian story begins with those four words. And so this is where I'll begin this story. Yeki bud, yeki nabud. It's late afternoon in 1970s Tehran, and I'm three years old. It's summertime, and outside the heat rises in ripples from the streets and the rooftops of the city. This is the quiet, slow hour of the day. It's the hour for stories. Yekibud, yekinabud, my grandmother begins. I love the stories that my grandmother told me in those days. I'd beg her for more and more to tell me more stories. I love, too, the scents of those summer afternoons, black tea steeped with rose petals and cardamom ponds, coriander and cumin wafting out from the kitchen, the scent of the city itself, hot and dusty, rising from the streets, the heady mix of honeysuckle and jasmine released by the heat of Tehran summers. It was there on the rooftops of my childhood home in Tehran that the beauty and grandeur of the Alborz Mountains first impressed itself on me. I'd look out across the city, clear across the rooftops, to the highest of them, Mount Damovand. Now Damovand, which is a volcano, I knew to be the source of the water that ran through the old jubes of Tehran, the old waterways and also the source of the streams uh, outside the city where we sometimes picnicked in the spring and summer. How, I wonder, could its peaks stay snowy even in winter, in summer, excuse me? It seemed like nothing less than magic. Those mountains, that volcano, seemed to me as distant as another country. Who knew in those days that all of us, everyone in my family, would travel so much farther than that and never return. When I began to write my memoir, The Good Daughter, I hadn't been to Iran for over 25 years, though I felt that I had in my memories. The scenes of my family's life there, winters tucked under the Corsi, sleeping off on the rooftops of the uh, of our home, the scents and sounds and tastes of Tehran were lodged in my mind with a fierce clarity. Not necessarily because I remembered them. My recollection had the kind of intensity that suggested that my imagination and my memory had merged in my mind, which is, I think, what happens to recollections of childhood, especially when they involve people in places that we can't visit anymore. My family left Iran in the late 70s, one of the hundreds and thousands of thousands who left in the wake of the revolution. This was just before I turned four years old, and so everything I know about the country still has been refracted through memory and through the stories that my family told. 
Nabokov, in his extraordinary memoir, Speak Memory, writes of these phenomena. He writes for the very purpose of reconstructing a world that no longer exists. The world of his childhood of pre-revolutionary Russia has been destroyed utterly. What remains of the country remains just in a few photographs and totems. But what he does in the course of writing the memoir is to conjure the world more, the world of his childhood, more vividly than any photograph or token could. And also, he conjures the rhythms uh, of his original Russian in the prose, the English that he writes. Everyone's past is like Nabokov's, irretrievable, lost. But I think that immigration in particular magnifies these kinds of losses. Now, fortunately, memory creates its own maps, however imperfect and mutable those might be. And I only have to remember Iran to go back to it. But there was this, too, as I was growing up. Iran was everywhere around me. When you leave a country, I think you carry it within you. But maybe you also build it around you. The black and white photographs, the antiques, the carpets, every room of my California childhood evoked the country that we had left and that we seemed less and le less likely to return to. My family built Iran through us, around us, through stories and memories. Were they faithful stories? Were they true? Not really. I think the past is always revised by loss and by longing. Memory is a ruthlessly discriminating, temperamental artist. It erases some experiences totally and magnifies others dramatically. In my family, our Iran was constituted totally by memories of a place we called Persia. Persia wasn't really a place or just a place. It was an idea of who we were. It was a story we told because Americans saw us as exotic at best, but most often as strange and sometimes even as frightening. We tell ourselves stories in order to live, the writer Joan Didion writes. Yes, that's it exactly, I think. Stories help us to live, which is to say also to survive. This seems to me the shared endeavor of Iranian immigrants in those early years after the revolution. When we remembered Iran as it had been in the 60s and early 70s, when we courted nostalgia, when we called ourselves Persians, not Iranians, we did this to shore ourselves up against judgment and discrimination, but also to shore ourselves up against loss and grief. But what stories did we choose not to tell? What stories did we choose not to write about our country and about ourselves? These questions nagged me as I got older, and I began, since I'm a bookish sort of person, to seek answers first as a reader and then as a writer myself. Of course, I might have looked elsewhere. I could have sought out the physical sites of my childhood. I could have returned to Iran as many others of my generations had begun to do. But that wasn't the journey I wanted to make. Not yet, anyway. What interested me was the country that memories and stories make. I wanted to visit the places of the mind that are as much our homes as the ones that we live in and the ones that we leave behind. I think I'm hardly alone in this. 
I belong to that generation of Iranian Americans, the first generation, the one and a half, the second generations, who have been busy writing our way back to the country of our origin. I stand alongside many others who've been busy trying to make sense of who we are, who our parents are, who our families are, what our nation was through narrative. Ours is, in this regard, an American story, and it's been told in innumerable other languages and in many other accents. Memoirs and biographies have figured prominently in the literature of all immigrant groups to this country. Yet while there's a lot about Iranian American literature that's consonant, that's reminiscent of immigrant literatures of other groups, there are certain characteristics that seem to me quite peculiar and particular to the Iranian American experience. For one thing, I'd say, in the Iranian diaspora, there's a strong orientation toward the historical, toward our pre-immigrant history. There's an urge to find what historians would call a usable past, specifically to come to terms with the experience of the 1979 revolution and the rise of the Islamic Republic. There are dangers, there are perils in such an orientation. Memoirs are liable to be read as history, as fact, as truth. They're liable to reduce or to truncate histories, both private and collective, and to reproduce, this is most critical, representations that solidify rather than undercut stereotypes. It's commonplace nowadays, I'd say, to disparage Iranian memoirs, to speak of them collectively as a blight or a nuisance, to read them as pandering to American audiences. Yet I think memoirs, the best memoirs, have a unique potential to upset perceptions and prejudices, to lend insight into experiences of individual and collective trauma, and to consecrate, this is for me the most vital today to talk to you about, to consecrate, consecrate memories that might otherwise be lost between generations and between countries. <clears throat> There is most certainly, I think, in the best of the memoirs written in the diaspora, a fantastic propensity to upset and upend the worst stereotypes and expectations that American readers and Western readers might have of us Iranians. But these are ambitions that contemplate an American readership. To what extent, though, do Iranian writers working in the diaspora imagine for themselves an Iranian readership? And how does the community receive and respond to these accounts? I think that as Iranian immigrants, we read memoirs to find our Iran, and we're disappointed when we don't find it. This has been, in any case, my experience as a reader. The more memoirs by Iranians I read as a young woman, and I read a lot of them, I couldn't read anything else for a while, actually. The less and less I recognized the Iran I myself remembered and that my family recalled. This was not least of all because there were huge tracks of ignorance in my own personal record of the past. This frustration, though, I felt as a reader would be hugely uh, helpful to me, useful to me as a writer. Toni Morrison, of course, the great African-American novelist, once remarked, if there's a book you really want to read and it doesn't exist, it hasn't been written yet, you have to write it. You have to write it. 
The Good Daughter is the book that I couldn't find. I couldn't find it on any shelf, and it's the book I felt that I had to write. I want to relate a bit of the circumstances that allowed that to happen um, and disclose a bit, too, about the process of writing the book. I was a graduate student when I discovered a photograph of my mother as a young bride. That photograph and a series of cassette tapes my mother made me after that discovery completely revised everything I thought I knew about my family. Here for the first time, my mother told me a story that she'd repressed for nearly 50 years. It was a story that I'd never read about in any of the innumerable books that I had read. Not in any case in the way that she told it on the tapes. Most everything I know about my mother and my grandmother's lives in Iran, my grandmother's marriage to my grandfather, my mother's own first marriage uh, at the age of 13, the fact that she had been forced to give up a child at the age of 14 as a condition of divorce, all of that I learned on a series of cassette tapes that my mother made for me after I discovered this picture of her as a young bride through the tapes but also through the endeavor of writing the memoir. When we came to America she had decided to tell no one, not even me, her daughter, about that first marriage. She had kept that hidden even from friends who knew her for 30 years. Imagine then my surprise when she came to me one day and she said let's write a book. It turns out that for some years, my mother had been reading the essays and short stories I'd begun publishing here and there, started to write in my 20s, and my mother had been reading these slyly. She'd been watching me, I think, as I angled my way in the direction of her life. She was appraising me not just as a daughter, but as a writer. I must have passed the test because after this survey, after this investigation of my writing, she came to me and she said, let's write a book. And so we began. You always have to listen to your mother, right? Let's write a book. So we began. For about a year, I'd show up at her house and she, I would bring a notebook and a pen and she'd make us some tea. She always insisted on making tea. And only then would we get to work on the story of her life. As I've been known to say of this period of my uh, life, it's a miracle that I survived. A friend who knows me well and who observed me as I worked with my mother on this project says that I could write a whole book on what it took to write the book. I won't write that book, but I can give you a concise history of uh, some of the um, notable events and episodes and crises uh, that evolved during the process of working with my mom. As a young writer, I had written about my family, but I'd only ever written about my family with myself as the center of the story and with myself as the final arbiter of how to write and what to write. Now, with my mom uh, nearby, I wanted to arrive at a fuller understanding of who she had been, who my grandmother had been, who my father had been. And this required a very different strategy, holding my tongue and listening. The basic story uh, of The Good Daughter comes directly from the 10 cassette tapes my mother made for me. I start each chapter with words my mom actually spoke into the cassette tapes. 
This was because I wanted a reader to hear her voice, or at least some fragment of it, to get to know her as a storyteller, because she's a wonderful storyteller. But the details of the story came uh, much later and by much more complicated means. Often during the year that we worked together, my mom could be maddeningly evasive or just plain maddening, or mother and daughter after all. But for the most part, she was honest and generous beyond my every expectation. I listened a lot, but she also endured hundreds, maybe even thousands of questions. All told, I spent about a year in this process of interviewing my mother. Readers, and I'm always heartened and uh, very pleased when they note this, remark on the specificity of historical detail in the book. Sometimes I think I catch a note of distrust, or maybe it's just incredulity. How could you remember all that? You were so young when you left Iran. You can't remember all that. Well, the answer is mostly uh, that I did listen well, and then I studied up really hard. Because I wanted to capture for a reader the sights and the smells and the sounds of Iran, an Iran that I think is lost even to many Iranians uh, by now, an Iran of the 1920s and 30s and 40s, a period much less written about um, than the 1970s, say. I lived for a time in a sort of Iranian world of my own making. I spoke Persian, of course. I ate Iranian food, which is hard work if you can get it. Um, I watched Iranian films. I listened to Persian music, Iranian music, and so on. Of course, also because I'm that bookish sort, I read every book I could get my hands on about pre-revolutionary Iran. Fiction, creative nonfiction, in Persian, in English... Two books I found very helpful, for instance, uh, were two books you're likely aware of, Iran Between Two Revolutions and the Mantle of the Prophet. Another very useful reference was a book that my friend found me, I think in a bookstore in Los Angeles, a six-volume encyclopedia called Tehran al-Qadim, Old Tehran. Luckily, I'm the sort of person who really rather enjoys spending a day or two or 27 with an encyclopedia poised on my lap. Um, I have to confess, though, I have a somewhat fluid concept of uh, research, and I would definitely count novels, the novels I read, as part of my uh, research during this time. One book in particular that I'll cite um, is Cry of the Peacock by a writer named Gina Nahai. Now, Gina Nahai, um, in order to write that book, spent many hundreds of hours conducting oral histories uh, in her community, the Jewish-Iranian community down in Los Angeles, and her methods and also her subject matter have always been a really important model to me. I read too many Iranian books, um, Iraj Pesikzad's My Dear Uncle Napoleon, Simin Danishvar's uh, Playhouse, and of course Parsipur's Wonderful Women Without Men, and also her novel Tuba. All of these are embedded in my book. Their spirits endure in some way in the book that I wrote. My own memory supplied me with other details. Even though I'd left Iran as a small child, the California world I grew up in was very much an Iranian one. Perhaps in some ways, and this always, to me, even strikes me as extraordinary, perhaps it was even more Iranian than it would have been if we had stayed in Iran. Uh, Immigration, I think, made my family more Iranian rather than less. 
And since I was an only child and a girl, I had spent hundreds of hours, thousands perhaps, um, of my childhood at my mother's friends' houses. Tea parties, dinner parties, wakes, uh, weddings, they were such a part of my life growing up. In writing this book, I was often braiding together my memories of those episodes with my mother's stories and also stories I remembered from my grandmother. To give an example, there's uh, an, in an early section of the book, there's an image of a woman gripping her veil between her teeth so as to leave her arms open uh, for carrying some packages in one arm and holding her child's hand in another. Now, the setting in the book is 1950s Iran, but that image of the woman gripping the veil between her teeth, that came directly from my memories of my grandmother hustling from the kitchen uh, to go and perform her namaz her daily prayers. I transported, if you will, my own memories onto the tableau of 1950s Iran. My mother's and my relationship had, had long been a fractious one, and in writing this book, I'd have to contend not just with the limits of my own patience, but also with my mother's sense of propriety, her very Iranian sense of propriety, about what one should or shouldn't, more often when, what one should not, uh, say. Now, Iranians, and I know there are more than a few in the room, masters of telling uh, stories, but also masters of keeping secrets. There are so many taboos in our culture, so much worry about saving face before others, uh, about what maradam, what people would think, about, about maintaining obiru, uh, saving face. We're not supposed to speak ill or intimately about our relatives, those alive, and not even those long deceased can be spoken of with anything other than reverence. Well, given this context, given this situation, um, I'm often asked, well, what does your mother think of the book? Um, well, there are times even now, two years since it's been published, that she'll howl, stop the presses, stop the presses, stop the presses. Uh, there are secrets in this book that her closest friends, uh, women who knew her for over 30 years, didn't know until they read the book. So you can imagine her trepidation in having her life story and very intimate tracks, too, of her life story told in such a public way. In particular, she was very concerned that Iranians, but also Americans, would judge her harshly for having left a child behind. As you recall, she was 13 when she married and gave up a child at the age of 14. And uh, this has been one of her abiding fears, is that people would judge her harshly for that decision, though I think many would recognize that there was very little choice uh, involved um, for a girl so young. In any case, that fear, this fear of judgment, has not abated. It's simply not gone away. Um, but when she's not asking me to stop the presses, uh, she's asking me if Oprah has called today, if Oprah's called today. Um, but in all seriousness, this book has given her an opportunity some 50 years on to tell a story that she had been counseled in no uncertain terms to forget. This book was her gift to me and the writing of it my gift back to her. Writing The Good Daughter was also, uh, uh, on the one hand, it was a deeply personal inquiry, uh, intimate inquiry, an attempt to understand my family's past, uh, but it's also been an attempt to understand Iran better. Having left the country as such a young child, 
Over the years, Iran itself has become hidden to me. The book has given me a view onto the country beyond both harsh media representations and also the nostalgic haze that exile tends to produce. The Good Daughter is as close as I have come to Iran since living there as a child. It's been a homecoming, I'd say, of a very particular and special kind. That said, some really tough negotiations went on behind the scenes, and I'll relate some of those to you. Uh, just to give one example, in an early passage of the book, I describe my great-grandmother's journey from the provinces to Tehran in the early years of the 20th century. She was one of many thousands who left the provinces to, uh, to come and settle in the capital. Well, when I showed my mother this uh, description, I'm actually going to read it in a little while, but when I showed her this passage, she kind of you know, furrowed her brow, and she demanded to know why I had put her grandmother on top of a donkey. Now, I was befuddled because there's no donkey in that scene, no donkey at all. Um, and I said to her, in fact, Mama, there is no donkey. She looked uh, very briefly, glanced down at the manuscript, and then she lifted her chin up at me, and she fixed me with one of those stares of hers, and she says, well, it feels like she's on a donkey. <laughs> Change it. <clears throat> Later, in the course of my research, I read a really interesting story about Reza Shah, who had apparently, this might be an apocryphal story, but I did read that he had at one point outlawed the photographing of camels. This is so fascinating. In the course of his modernization efforts, uh, Reza Shah was very bent on showing the West a different kind of uh, image of Iran, and part of that endeavor was to forbid the photographing of camels who had too long resided in the Western imaginary as emblematic of Iran. Well, when I read this, I connected it to this you know, exchange with my mother over a different beast of burden, the donkey. My mom is very much of a generation of Iranians who had been told to look forward, not backward. Now, even though she was very forthcoming about certain painful and ugly episodes in her own life, she was appalled at the idea um, that I might be uh, in some way producing an account of Iran that might solidify uh, a certain uh, barbaric impression, if you will, in an American reader's mind. So what's a memoirist to do? What do you do with the mere suggestion of a donkey, even when you haven't written a donkey into a scene? Well, in the end, I chose to do nothing at all. But what I did do, I let the, the passage rest as it was written originally, but I got so fascinated by this exchange with my mom that I decided to tell that story of Reza Shah and of the photographing of the camels and to, in a sense, wed these two stories together so that that history was placed alongside our history. Uh, in a more somewhat in a more somewhat serious vein, um, I chose to write uh, pretty forthcomingly about my grandparents' marriage, and my mother was very distressed when I chose to write about certain um, episodes of domestic abuse in the family. Uh, more than 50 years after his death, my mother uh, still thinks of her father as godly. She always says he saved my life by getting a divorce for me. And, uh, and she was really hurt and really 
really rather um, insistent that I not write anything about the way that he had abused uh, my grandmother. Now, in that case, what I did is um, I was able successfully uh, to convince her that for a reader, that decision, his decision to seek a divorce for her when she was 14 and suffering uh, from a quite abusive marriage, that that would be more poignant if a reader knew and understood that he had to overcome and repudiate his own past uh, as a man who had, um, who had treated his wife quite poorly. In that case, grudgingly, she eventually agreed uh, and she relented and I uh, was able to write those scenes into the book. In the end, it went something like this. this. If there was a scene that I was drawing uh, chiefly as source material from her memories and I was unable to persuade her, I tried hard, but I wasn't always successful, then I was respectful. I allowed uh, her version of events or her sensibility to stand. But if I was drawing from my own memories or some other memories, some other relative's memories, or if I was writing about myself, then I gave myself complete license over the story. If in the end I didn't write exactly the book I wanted to write, well, she didn't get exactly the book she wanted written. The Good Daughter is in the end. It's an act of collaboration. Um, it's a work of hard one compromise. Now, two uh, charges are often leveled against the memoir, and I want to touch on them briefly before I finish. Um, the first one has to do with the issue of lies with deception, and the second has to do with betrayal. So I'm going to start with deception. So how much of the story did you make up? That's a question I'm asked with some frequency. The question is not, it seems, whether I have lied, but how much I have lied. I think this says something of about the disrepute into which memoir as a genre has fallen at this point in time. I'm here to tell you I did lie, but not in the ways that you might think. The true story, the real story uh, of my mom's life was much more painful than the story that I wound up writing. I had to, if anything, temper um, the painfulness of certain episodes. For example, scenes between my mother and the child that she was forced to give up, those were some of the hardest, hardest scenes I have ever written and hope ever that I will have to write. When I'd ask her about her daughter, my mother would go quiet. My ordinarily very loquacious mother would shut down completely. She had been counseled when she was a young, uh, young bride uh, contemplating divorce not to even speak her daughter's name. Uh, given the stigma that had been attached to divorce in those years, this is 1950s Iran, her family thought that a complete break from her child was best for all. She was 14 years old. It was a mercy. It was thought that both a mother and daughter go on with their lives and have no contact with each other. This was the thinking back then. Even though my mother did keep that promise, of course she didn't forget her daughter, nor did her daughter forget her. It's beyond words. That kind of rupture in a family is beyond words. But it's a part of my family's story, and I've tried to give it words. The question is, how can one honestly write about some such fractures in a family? How do you write those ruptures in a narrative about your family. 
while the last chapters of the book are threaded with silence and discontinuity. It's intended to be that way. The book, in the end, might bedevil a reader's expectation of a happy or a neat or a tidy ending, but I've attempted at the close of the book to reflect on all that can't be asked or told and will never be known. I've sought to create some semblance of closure, the fiction of closure, without obscuring all that remains elusive and totally unintelligible to me. You see, the biggest lie about a memoir, not just mine, but any memoir, is that the story ends. The past isn't a fixed destination. It changes with us as we move through our lives. This book would have been another book entirely if I had written it five years before I did or five years after I did. It'll be, it would have been a different book if I wrote it 20 years from now. The end of the book, and no portion of it, is an outright lie, but there are fictions that riddle it. Not that it didn't happen, not that there weren't, weren't moments of closure, but so much has transpired since the moment I choose to end the book on, and I'll likely spend the rest of my life trying to figure out the meaning of this story. <coughs> I think that if we're honest, any interpretation of our lives is always merely provisional. It's always temporary. To say anything different is, I think, to practice a lie, to deceive ourselves. And betrayal, so I've taken on the issue of lies, of deception, and I want to touch on the issue of betrayal. Have I betrayed my family in writing this book? Well... Here again, I have to concede that I have. I do think I've betrayed them. It's ironic because my mother and my grandmother are such wonderful stories, such extraordinary masters of language. My grandmother, for instance, wholly illiterate, could nonetheless recite epic poems, limericks, and fables. Her cache of tales was endless. And what talkers she and my grandmother, my grandmother and my mother were. I can't even think about them without hearing in my head their arguments and their bickering and their gossip. On and on and on they'd go. But they were also such masterful keeper of secrets. And as I grew up, I learned to listen really carefully for those moments where their voices grew more quiet. That's when they were telling the truth about themselves and maybe about other people. That's where the good stuff was happening. That's where I listened for most carefully. My grandmother and my mother grew up in houses ringed with tall walls. And inside those houses, if they told the truth, they told it in whispers. They understood the power that a rumor gossip could have, how swiftly these could undo you if you were a woman. I, however, write in a culture of confession. No holds barred. Nothing. Everything goes. What's more, as an American writer writing in this moment, I have little sense that I even have a readership, much less a place in public discourse. Even if you persist in devoting your life to writing, there's very little in American culture that would persuade you to think anything, uh, that anything you write um, is of any meaning or relevance to the majority of people's lives out there. Given this state of affairs, it's easy for me to forget that other people, especially women from a culture, 
that distrusts the words of women, that tends to think that words of women uh, inherently false, um, a culture that has refused women a place in literature for many, many decades, many centuries, even until very recently. The very ability to tell a story, to write and publish a book is very powerful to women from a culture like mine. Now, I am the one who is the author of my family's story. I have authored the story of all of our lives. Whatever concessions I've made, however sympathetic I have tried to be, in the end, it's my version of their story that exists in the world, and there is nothing my mother nor my grandmother can do to change it. But we can't tell the stories of our families without changing them. That's my point. To tell a story at all is to change a story. You know this. To stress one detail over another, to leave out some other detail, you can alter the meaning of a story totally by the slightest alteration. It's a betrayal. I have practiced a terrible betrayal. But without betrayals like this, there'd be no art. I was never interested in writing a biography. My book makes no claim for impartiality or full disclosure. Its sensibility is my own. Even when there's no character called Jasmine in the book, I inhabit every page, every sentence, every word of the book. Because after all, every portrait whether it's written or a visual one, is a double portrait. It is at once a portrait of the figure, of the subject of that portrait, but also a portrait of the artist herself, the artist herself. But I'm astonished to discover how much my mother and my grandmother are, after all, truly the authors of this book in ways that never cease to amaze me. They are the authors truly of this book. Readers have noted to me this wasn't anything that I really was conscious of until readers began to remark that there's a distinctive lyrical quality to the prose in this book. This was nothing I was consciously um, controlling as I wrote it, but I think it makes sense because until I started school, I only spoke Persian at home, and long after I I started school, I still spoke Persian at home. Persian is the language of my family, and it is still probably will always be the language of my memories. It was in Persian that my mother would record those cassette tapes for me, and in Persian in, uh, was the language in which we, uh, in which we um, spoke to each other in the course of working on this book. Though I was writing in English, I think something of per- Persian survives in my prose. The poetry of the prose, and again, this is something that readers have remarked on, I think it's a vestige of the places and the people of which I write. My mother's and also my grandmother's voices echo through my prose just as surely as their lives echo through mine. I'm nearly done, nearly done, but I want to make this grand claim here. Art shows us who we are. I read a story recently about Milton Glaser. You might not know him, but he's best known. He's a visual artist who's known for his iconic I Love New York shirts. Everybody knows those. Well, Glaser said until he sat down to sketch his mother, he didn't have the faintest idea what she looked like. The deep attentiveness that drawing brought to the act of seeing his mother allowed him to bypass the image that he'd lived with all of his life. 
He would explain it like this. It's that act of attention that allows you to really grasp something, to become fully conscious of it. That's what I learned from my mother's face, that drawing is really a kind of thinking. And for me, likewise, writing is a kind of thinking. And it allows me to see places and people, not for the second or the third time, but in a really true, truly extraordinary way for the first time. Writing allows me to see as I cannot see in any other way. When I began to write this book, I had to imagine my mother as a character. In original drafts of the manuscript, I was calling her always my mother. Readers didn't like that. Then I started calling her her name, her given name. My mother didn't like that. I decided then to give her a pseudonym, Lily, and it's just the kind of trick it took for me to begin to imagine her as an entity in her own right. She became a person not only or not merely my mother. With that one trick, she became independent, and I could see her fully and truly for the first time. There's an old African proverb that I think is very beautiful and wise and sad, too. It goes like this. When an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. I'm going to say it again because I think it's so beautiful. When an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. That I would someday write the story of my family must have seemed inevitable to my mother. When she said to me, let's write a book, she did so in part because while still alive, she could participate in her story's telling. Many, many writers wait until their parents die in order to tell their family stories, and that might have happened to me, but my book, I think, was all the richer, is all the richer for my mother's participation in it. The further back she reached in time, and I think this is an extraordinary faculty of memory, the further back my mother remembered her life, the more vivid and rich her memories were. The further in time we went together in these conversations, the more detailed, the more precise, the more evocative her memories were. There's no way I could have gotten that on my own. The stories that my mother told me about her life invoked a world that was long gone before the revolution. That world might have burned down to the ground, but instead it became a book. And I think there's a particular urgency to capture the stories of our elders, and I'm speaking here uh, as, a, as an Iranian imagining Iranians now, how very important it is It is for us to capture the stories of our elders. Our parents and our gra- grandparents house with them, within them whole libraries of memories and of stories. They are our country. My mother is my country, or at least a very essential part of it. And I'm heartened to learn, uh, I was talking with Professor Milani earlier about uh, oral history projects uh, within the Iranian community, and I hope that these projects are also happening in different forms, in intimate uh, transactions as well. whether we write these for an audience or only for ourselves, these stories, the stories of our elders, are worth listening to. They're worth preserving before they burn to the ground. They are worth making our own, too. So those are, that's the end of my formal remarks. And I'll take applause. I'm quite happy to have it. <laughs> um, but uh, I did.
did, if you want me to, I did want to read a little bit. So after all that talking about the book, um, you might have some uh, some desire to hear it. So you can nod at me if you would like that. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I don't have a clock, so I'm hoping. Uh, Someone will flag me if I'm going grossly over my time. But, um, but I'd like to read you uh, a section of the book. Um, I'll read for maybe, maybe 10 minutes, I'll read, and then very happy, uh, as mentioned earlier, to engage in conversation with you. So I'll read from the very beginning of the, of the memoir. This is a chapter titled Avenue Monirie. If you want to know my story, my mother Lily began, you have to know about Avenue Monirier, about your grandmother Cobra, and about your grandfather Soprab, and what Iran was then. Because we couldn't do what you do here, forget your name and who you belong to. Our lives were not like that. No. That's my mother. When she named her ninth child, Pagwat Amini indulged her own fancies at last. Cobra, she announced to the midwife and smiled from the blood-stained sheets. The great one. At this, the midwife looked up and considered her face. Pagwat Amini had black eyes and cheeks so fair and flushed they were like snow blotted with blood, as was said back then. In a room that had grown warm and damp with her exertions, she met the midwife's gaze with a heavy stare. Cobra, Pagwa said again, her voice softer but still sure. Even, even the newborn, a tiny raging bundle with a shock of black hair, was silent at that moment. The scent of cinnamon and cardamom rose from the kitchen and threaded its way through the house. The midwife took in a single sharp breath bit her lip and then resumed her task of dusting my great-grandmother's loins with ashes. When Pargord was a girl, she and her family had left their village in the south, journeyed a hundred miles over Iran's dusty red-rimmed central plateau, and settled in the then-walled capital city of Tehran. Though she could not read and had never been to school, Pargod could recite the Quran from beginning to end in Arabic, God's tongue, and she knew most of the Hadith as well. The names of Pargod's other eight children had been chosen under the watchful gaze of her father-in-law. Together they made up an unremarkable roster of Muslim names, Ali Reza, Ghassem, Fatimeh, Abu al-Faz, Muhammad, Ali Ahmad, Khadijah, Zahra, but by the time of this child's birth, Paraguay's father-in-law was dead, and she, barely 30, was already called an old woman. And so on that day in 1929, the list of her children's names settled finally on one born of her own imagination, Cobra. Later, it was commonly suspected that Pargol had lost her mind. Everybody feared for the child. But Cobra grew up to be the prettiest girl of the family, with the only pair of honey-colored eyes in the house. And with her beauty came a temperament so gentle that it dispelled every rumor about her mother's willfulness and her own virtue. Around her neck, Cobra wore a black string from which a from which a single tiny blue eye hung and nestled itself in the hollow of her throat. The amulet was meant to protect her from the evil eye that had, since the day of, Par of Cobra's birth, bedeviled her mother. She was so fearful that jealous eyes would alight on her favorite child. 
In Iran, such children are called the pearls of their mother's fortunes. The Amini's house sat in an alleyway barely wide enough for two people to walk side by side, and along the middle of it ran the Jew. These were the open waterways that once traversed the entire length of Tehran north to south. The Jup water started out clear and cold at the foot of Damovan, the snow-capped volcano to the north of the capital, but by the time it reached Pargo's house near the old southern gates of the city, the stream had become thickly clogged with refuse and dirt. Every day there were stories of boys who'd wandered far from home, fallen into live waterways somewhere in the city, and returned home in damp clothes. It was something for which they'd surely be beaten since the jupe was known to carry ringworm, typhoid, diphtheria, and they'd been warned many times not to play near it. When women ventured into the streets at all, they always did so with the fears that their veils would dip into the waters of the jupe and render them najis, impure. But peddlers wended their way daily through the alleyways, their wooden carts piled high with onions, herbs, vegetables, fruits. When their wheels ran into, ju- into the jupe or ruts and bumps, of which there were many then throughout the capital, the clatter of pots and pans stopped briefly, then started up again once the peddler had hauled their cart onto a smoother patch of road. Long-haired, cloaked dervishes were also known to traverse the city, hawking poems, soothsayings, and tonics as they went. It could be said that the streets belonged to the peddlers and the dervishes and also to the beggars who lined the streets of all such neighborhoods. The house itself, my grandmother's house, was built of hand-hewn bricks with honeysuckle and jasmine spilling over the high walls that enclosed it. The large colony of sisters and aunts and mothers and grandmothers within never left the house except to attend a wedding or a funeral close by or else to make a pilgrimage to a martyr's shrine. And for that, they always traveled with their men. Every seven days from behind the walls of her house, Pargo heard the plaintive cry of the namaki, the salt seller. Humpbacked and toothless, he roamed the city with his salt born on the back of an ancient donkey. Oh, there is a donkey after all. There is a different donkey. Every few blocks, he'd cup his fingers around his mouth, tip his head to the sky, and call out, Namaki, Namaki. When she heard his cry, Pagor would throw her chador about her and poke her head out of the door for her weekly slab of salt. Pargol had married a rug merchant by the name of Goli Amini, better known as Goli Khan or Sir Goli. He stood a full head shorter than his wife, a predicament that, true to both his nature and his outlook on life, he regarded with a mixture of disbelief and amusement. Every day, Goli Khan, Sir Goli, set out for the great canopied bazaar in the center of the city. Once there, he'd take his place next to the fruit sellers, pyramids of melons, pomegranates, oranges, bundles of mint and parsley, crates of dried figs and mulberries. Perched on an enormous gunny sack of salted almonds, his complete inventory of rugs beside him, he waited in the bazaar from morning to night so that people could consider his wares and pay him the modest sums with which Pagol managed their lives. Shall I read a bit more? or are you still? Okay. Um, okay. As Cobra grew, 
Pargol, her mother, favored her in a thousand quiet ways, but the strength of her affections was never more evident than when the blood letter came calling. This happened twice a year, once at the end of summer and once at the end of winter. Bloodletting was thought to keep a body healthy and strong, proof of which could be found in the rosy tint it lent even the most sallow complexion. But no matter how many times they were reminded of the treatment's benefits, nothing kept the children from running at the sight of the blood letters, blistering cups, and the jars of slithering black leeches she harvested from provincial riverbanks. Paragor, though, she brooked no resistance. Hands on hips, jaws set, she routed her children out of their hiding places throughout the house. She sent her sons in first, and then, one by one, she pinned the girls' plates to the tops of their heads. When the blood letter finished with the boys, she sliced the girls' backs with a razor and pressed her cups to the cuts, or else planted her leeches on their bare backs. Cobra's siblings hollered or whimpered, each according to his or her disposition and the vigor of their respective treatments. Pargol always suffered their torments without blinking, but she couldn't bear to hear her youngest daughter, Cobra, so much as whimper. So year after year, Cobra was left unmolested in her hiding place behind the water cistern in the basement. Still, when Pargol decided to send 11-year-old Cobra from the house to learn a trade, not even a long history of such indulgences could stop mouth after mouth from falling open. A girl stayed in her father's house until marriage, and even the less pious would have agreed that formal education was wasted on females. But soon after Cobra turned 11, Pargol predicted that as the last of so many children, it was unlikely Cobra would ever marry. For this reason, Pargol explained, it would be necessary to send Cobra to a school that prepared young girls to become professional seamstresses. Many secretly believed that Pargol wished to keep this one child for herself, and that it was for this reason that of all of her daughters it was Cobra who was sent forth to study and work. But whatever the reason, from then on Cobra could be seen each morning stepping into the streets of Tehran, her kerchief knotted at her chin, with a basket of fabric and needles in one hand, and a small iron pot filled with rice and stew in the other. There were twelve other girls, other students in her class, all of them from families even poorer than her own. But she made her first friend sitting side by side on the floor with those girls. Their teacher, Mareke Khanum, or Mrs. Queen, was a round-faced widow with long henna hair and two thick rows of gold bracelets dancing at her wrists, and she laughed easily with the girls. In the morning, she taught them to sew, and in the afternoon, she taught them to embroider. From the fabric, silk, velvet, georgette, voile, crepe de chine, Cobra guessed that the garments would be... Uh, they were sewing would be for the fine ladies of the city, and it thrilled her to run her fingers along the glorious bolts of fabric stacked along one wall of Madike Khanum's basement, and to imagine the material skimming a woman's body here, clinging to it there. Madike Khanum showed the girls how to measure with their hands, spreading her fingers wide like a fan and counting off from the tip of her thumb to the tip of her pinky. One two, three. Ample figures would still be in fashion for another few years, and a waist the width of three outstretched hands was considered ideal in the days that Cobra sat in Madike Khanum's basement learning her trade. 
the girls watched their teacher and then, shyly at first, spread their own fingers against the fabric she set at their feet. One, two, three. They looked up to make sure they'd measured well, and when Madike Khanum nodded and smiled at every one of them, they took turns cutting the fabric with Madike Khanum's only pair of brass scissors. The girls themselves, I'm just going to read a little short bit more and then finish. The girls themselves wore cotton pantaloons with chérité, the short flounced skirts of a curious provenance. I love this story, so I have to read it. The story went, not this book, but this particular story. The book's not bad either, but uh, the story went that once, during the 19th century, a Qajar king had been shown a photograph of some ballerinas on a Paris stage and was so taken by the sight that he set out for France right away. During the trip, he became an avid patron of the ballet, coincidentally running up stupendous bills at the Paris brothels. These he settled by selling the French government rights to carry out archaeological expeditions in Iran and to retain whatever artifacts they unearthed. On his return from France, the Qajar king decreed that all the ladies of his court should henceforth appear dressed in tutus. Out of modesty, the Iranian princesses wore their silken skirts with long tunics and flowing trousers or white tights underneath. The skirts were given a Persian name, Shedite, which suggested the rustling sounds they made when the ladies of the Qajar palaces danced in them. Now that the Qajars had been overthrown in favor of the Pahlavi dynasty and Western clothes had become a matter not just of fashion but also of royal mandate, only poor women still dressed in sherite and their skirts were made of plain cotton, not silk, and they issued no pleasing rustles when they walked. My grandmother's only sherite was apricot colored and it had belonged first to Pagod, who'd worn it to cross the desert, not on a donkey, so many years ago. Sometimes, Marike Khanum let her students keep remnants from the dresses they sewed. In her first month at the school, Cobra chose two squares of wool, and with them she sewed two scarves. One was blue like a robin's egg, and the other crimson as a pomegranate seed. She had no pearls or golden coins, and so she embroidered them with a handful of tiny turquoise beads. She took the scarves home to her mother, Pagol, who wore them constantly, one day the blue one, the next day the red one, with great pleasure and more than a little pride. The first year, Cobra went to Madike Khanum's school as a student, but she was so clever and hardworking that the second year she went as an assistant and the third year as a teacher herself. But then one night, Cobra's brother, Ali Ahmad, the gambler, put forth a proposition that altered my grandmother's fortune forever. One evening, after losing a great sum of money, his greatest loss yet in what would be a long and infamous career, Ali Ahmad turned to his gambling opponent and said, you can take my sister. He didn't name her at all, but he added simply, the youngest one. And that's all. Happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you for listening all that time. Yes. The, uh, you mentioned that before you went to the uh, 
the memories, the more clarity they, they contain. Yeah. I'm wondering where the factual aspects of those memories are also colored by the emotions that may have been entailed in the, uh, the, the narratives that we were, we were discussing in the world. So the question is, I had remarked that the further back in time we went, the more vivid in detail the memories were. And I think the question then is, were the emotions likewise more vivid? Is that, is that did correct to understand? Mem memories. Did, did the memories um, become, did, did they become more emotional? They did. Um, I would say every aspect, not just, um, not just the detail, but also the emotional valence of those memories was far more intense. I think that's probably true of all of us. We all, I think, we feel particularly strongly about memories from our past um, of childhood in particular. And it, I think, is extraordinary that the, the older we become, the more vivid those emotions and memories become. It fascinates me so that as a faculty of memory, we might be moving away, but the past is coming closer to us. So I actually had to work less hard as a writer. I could just sit and I could listen. I could ask a question. I could just say, what did your grandmother wear? And my mom would start, oh, it was the shady tin, it was apricot colored, and you know, so, so memories about her family that harkened back quite a lot were very detailed, and I just had to listen, you know, I, I, I received them with such pleasure. I had to work a lot harder when we moved closer to where we were uh, in time. Um, and, uh, and so, um, so I would say absolutely it's the fact um, that the memories and the emotions were far more vivid and that um, the labor for me as a writer was to try to create um, that same quality in memories that coming from my mother were not quite as vivid, um, were not as emotionally laden. Um, because of course you can't write a book that feels very rich you know, in the first 20 pages and then uh, dwindles and diminishes in that quality. So that's where I had to really ask more questions. I really had to uh, bear down um, with with her and uh, and be quite um, resourceful in the questions I was asking. Yeah. yeah. So first of all, I really enjoyed your presentation. Thank you. Uh, I look forward to getting the book and reading it. So you know, just the piece that you read, mm -hmm. um, it contains a narrative about specific memories and events, but intertwined in it was um, explanations of things that are very Persian and, yes. and for your audience, your, your readers, you have to explain. Yes. So you, you've done both of those beautifully, but, but I'm curious to know, as you were writing those, um, how, how conscious were you of the inclusion of all the nuances, mm -hmm. like the Jew, like the traditions and the history of the Qajar and how the Tutu came to Iran. Right. I mean, how much, how much of that was part of a conscious effort for you to educate the reader yeah. of the context in which your grandmother and your mother's life unfolds? All right, so, and I'll repeat it um, very briefly. So the, in the section that I read, there was both a personal story, but then there was a lot of cultural detail and historical detail. And how conscious was I as I was writing um, that I needed perhaps uh, to interpose 
those more historical cultural details with the personal. I was very conscious of that. I always contemplated a reader for which this world would be utterly alien. Uh, I always imagined an American reader, first of all, to the, to the extent I was imagining a reader. It was not an Iranian one. It was an American one. And of course, I took great pleasure. A lot of this, I was actually, I was learning for the first time myself, and it, I took great pleasure in learning it, and then in finding ways of braiding the two storylines, if you will. But there, there was always in my mind um, a reader that would be unfamiliar with this world, who would need to be taken almost by the hand through this world. And I would say, though it was an American reader, I think, again, a lot of Iranians are unfamiliar with this world. This world was destroyed. It does not exist anymore. You can't go there. Um, it certainly doesn't exist. So I don't think it's only, you know, it, it, it winds up not being only for the benefit of an American reader. Um, the, the difficulty is when you're writing like that, you don't want to weigh the story down with too many long extended sequences devoted to history. Um, you lose momentum of, of the story. And I was very aware not just that I needed to include that, but to be judicious and uh, to be somewhat conservative, not to belabor too much those moments, to seed them in. They're embedded throughout the text, but the story has to keep moving. You cannot have six pages um, of uh, historical um, narrative in there. You, you simply can't. So um, so a great challenge and uh, and, and one that... <laughs> Gave me a run for my money, I'd say, definitely. Yeah. Yes. It seems very significant. You're also a lawyer. I don't think that's relevant at all. <laughs> you I think, think so? The way you analyze it very. Oh yeah. Emotional things very clearly. Uh -huh. Some other angles. Oh, also, in your humor. Lawyers are funny. No, <laughs> I've never heard that. Okay. Sorry. All right. Well, I guess I guess it wasn't a total loss um, that no, that I did that, um, and uh, and I'm embarrassed because Professor Milani, uh, he, this came out in conversation, but I don't usually even disclose that I was once a lawyer. So, <laughs> but it's out now. The secret's That's out. Part of it, yes. Yeah. Uh, but thank you. I'll I'll let my mom know that it wasn't a full waste. <laughs> yeah. Other questions? Yeah, Dominic. Um, you've talked about the, um, the kind of tension between fictionalizing certain parts for various emotional and personal reasons. Mm -hmm. um, also this kind of scaffolding that you felt you needed to do because you were aiming at a reader that wouldn't know the history that you were talking about regardless of whether mm -hmm. they're American or I wonder, did you ever um, contemplate taking your mother's story, listening to that, and then simply using it as a model to write something that was kind of purely fictional. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and obviously that's not what you did. So, you know, if you thought about that, why didn't you do it? And um, in not doing that, you know, you, you then kind of force yourself and then by extension your mother and the family into this position where you do have to deal with saving face and the kind of shame of certain yeah. things. So that's a real choice that you made. Yes. And you talked about it a little bit, but I was wondering if you could talk about sure. it a bit more. I'm very grateful for this question. So I didn't write it as fiction, but I might have. And many people remark that it sounds like fiction. My 
um, you know, even my literary agent will say from time to time, great novel you wrote, when's the next one coming along? And I'll say, it's a memoir, Sandy. Okay, um, but I think you know it has a quality of a of a novel, and um, so the question I could have maybe I had the ability uh, to write it as a novel, and why didn't I? I did actually contemplate that, um, and the, one of the first reasons I did think about that was because there was such a glut of Iranian memoirs that came out immediately before mine. Um, I think some uh, some as many as 50. I think between 9/11, Iranian memoirs written in America have been published. So by the time my book was up, you know, up on you know up for sale, so to speak, there was quite quite a lot of competition and not a lot of interest. Um, and my my agent, you know, I turned to her and I said, well, I'm, let's just call it a novel because if the problem is there's so many Iranian memoirs, let's just circumvent that and call it a novel. I'll write the same book. I don't have to deal with the fallout from my mom or my family, and we'll call it a novel, and it you will find a publisher. And my agent counseled me to hold off because I think she was quite right about this. I think a reader responds differently to a memoir than to a novel. Great, there are. I am such a passionate reader of novels, but I think it is simply true that we engage in a different way with a memoir. If we think that it is a true story, we will invest ourselves more. You can argue with whether that's a right um, right thing to do or not, but I think that's true. And, and my agent felt very strongly that this story was one that was very powerful, and it was especially powerful as a memoir and not as a novel. I'm grateful that she told me to hold off. Also because, as I was remarking, this is a story I hadn't seen written. I, I had not seen a story of this kind written before. And because it was trafficking in topics, taboos like domestic abuse and, um, and divorce, I had the feeling, I, I made the guess that for an Iranian reader, had I written this as fiction, there would be a much greater potential for an Iranian reader to dismiss it as the mere workings of this girl's imagination. And it seemed to me because these, because, precisely because these were such taboos, and because they're topics that I care so much about, the rights of women, the stories of women are so important to me, that I wanted very much to stand for the truth of these stories and to write it as memoir. So we stuck with memoir and thankfully eventually a publisher came along and agreed with that. Um, but it did go, I did have these moments of thinking, well, an American you know, readership is tired, they're weary now of memoir, perhaps I need to make this concession. Um, and, and I'm very glad that in the end that did not happen. Now having said that, I will never write another memoir. I just, I, I won't. Uh, you know, well, you know, never say never, but it's awfully hard negotiating. Um, certainly, I think it was worth it in the end. And I, th- I think I wrote a, a good book, uh, but it's very hard as an artist to be constrained by an editor who is also your mother. And, you know, that, that's a very difficult situation. And I'm writing now a novel. It's lovely because I'm telling the truth all over the place about myself, but I'm calling it a lie, and nobody knows the difference, right? So I probably am more present. There are aspects of myself that I did not write about in this book, even though I appear as a character in it, but there are aspects of my, my, my own experience that I would not have put into this book that I am now 
transposing into a work of fiction and writing with far great, uh, far greater honesty under the veil, if you will, to use a very overused a metaphor, under the veil of fiction, it gives me quite a lot more freedom. So I'm enjoying that um, that process now. But this book, I think, I think it is um, worthy of memoir, and I'm glad that in the end I wrote it as memoir. Um, if your memoir is sort of a window, as you say, into the Iranian zeitgeist, uh, uh, sort of a mirror reflection of, of your Iranian identity, um, you know, to what extent is it also sort of a prophetic crystal ball um, or a compass, yeah. kind of pointing to where, where you're headed? Mm-hmm. Um, and is this, is this not also an exercise in offering your own destiny, not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you mean, um, may I just ask for clarification, this crystal ball, is it the whole world that I see in this crystal ball, or is it my own destiny that I might well, be? the memoir, as, you know, it, it reflecting your past and your tradition, but also mm-hmm. pointing to where that tradition where is going, where identity is going. Yeah, um, that's such an interesting question. So the book um, my friend Mishana is suggesting is a reflection of the past. Is it to some extent a... Um, a vision, too, of the future, of perhaps where we're going as Iranians or as Iranian women. Um, I would say that, you know, that if I just think about my mother's life in the course of her, I'm not going to give her age because she'd not forgive me, but um, in the course of her life, you know, to go from being told you can't speak your daughter's name to collaborating in the most public way on a memoir um, that that then goes out into the world. That's an extraordinary trajectory to go from that kind of prohibition on the truth to this kind of extraordinary revelation on the other hand. Um, America's made my mom at least a little bit American, do you know? I mean, I think her sensibilities are changing. Still very much Iranian, but I think America has managed to um, to loosen her tongue a little bit, and uh, and I think that um, I see this too. It's it's so interesting to me when I've gone out and I've done readings. Sometimes my mom's friends come and they'll take me by the hands and they'll say, you know, I have a story I want to tell you. <laughs> and you know, these are women my mom's generation, also very proper women, you know, but. I think there, there's been extraordinary changes in the lives of Iranian women globally in Iran, certainly, but I see it within my own community that the tongues are loosening a little bit. There's a little bit less, you know, a little bit less apprehension. I still think what my mom's done is extraordinary, but I too, I, I'm so charmed by these friends of hers who come and take me under the arm and tell me something about their lives that they thought they could never tell anybody, you know. Um, and someone remarked, um, you know, that this this book is very much about about daughters, but it isn't until I appear in the book that um, that the daughters. Um, I am the last of the line that is not also at the moment that the book closes a mother too. I mean, it does not seem that my destiny is is consigned to that. And that was kind of an, a really interesting observation a reader made is that you managed to author a book where you interjected into that narrative. You you kind of aborted that narrative. Now, I did marry, so it is, you know, an aspect of life I've experienced. But 
But it was interesting for a reader to say, here are generations of women who were only ever defined um, by this particular arrangement, and you end the book without having achieved that, and it's still closure there. So I thought that was really, really kind of extraordinary. Um, and again, t- to think of where we've come in just 30 years, um, that, uh, that we can find closure in a narrative without uh, fulfilling those old expectations.